this series about, about pastors, we were asking the question, well, what does the New Testament have to say about the office of pastor? And what we notice is that the New Testament uses the same, uses three words interchangeably. Remember, it was pastor, which means shepherd. It was what else? Elder, which means elder, right? And then it was overseer, which is also bishop, right? So then after we looked at the New Testament, we found that not only were these words used interchangeably, but we saw that this, this individual was in charge of laboring, in charge of teaching, and in charge of overseeing the church. And that it's not just one person, but that when the New Testament speaks about this office, it speaks about a number of them, a plurality. So then in the second in the second sermon, what was the image that we had there? The second sermon, what was the image that we had? The rope, right? We had that image of the rope, remember? Um, if you go to the next slide, you'll see it was the three-cord rope from Ecclesiastes. And remember, we, we had the whole story about me and my friend going out in the, in the canoes and basically how we had to literally carry each other's burdens and how that is representative of the rope there, the three cables, you know, wrapped, wrapped in one and the other to make them strong. And today we're going to turn and we're going to go through First Timothy. We're going to go through the whole book of First Timothy, right? It's not going to take that long. It's pretty short, but we're going to go through the whole the whole book. And this is going to be our guiding passage for today. So I'm going to read it with you guys if you want to follow. And that's First Timothy. And this is from First Timothy chapter one, verses eighteen to nineteen. Not chapter eighteen and nineteen, because there's no such thing. Right? It's only a couple of chapters long. So reading it says, "This charge I entrust to you, Timothy." my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So the central truth of the text for today is that Paul wrote 1 Timothy 18-19 in order to exhort Timothy and pastors to avoid shipwrecking their faith by practicing and preaching the gospel. So, this First Timothy, along with Second Timothy, and the book and, and the letter of Titus, they're known as the pastoral epistles, right? Epistles is just another word for letters. And Paul's writing these letters to instruct young Timothy about being a pastor, right? About the type of responsibility. And you guys have heard that one of the repeated things throughout the the letters, the epistles, is Paul talking about these false teachers. He's always talking about these false teachers, right? different types of false teachers. They're always running around and causing all these different problems, right? So what we're going to find in this letter, this letter is normally known for being a letter where we get the qualifications of the pastor. But what the letter is really about is these false teachers. And Paul uses the qualifications as an argument against the false teachers. So that's kind of what we're going to zero in today. And if you guys can remember, one of the illustrations we used is I asked the question, what was a pastor? What are pastors? And some people see pastors as a CEO. Some of them see them as like a glorified counselor. You know, some of them see them as, um, as a church administrator. But apparently some people also see them as a celebrity, right? A reality celebrity. So I'm going to have us watch uh, about three minutes of a, of a promo video uh, for, for how some of the people perceive them to be surrounded. So if you could just go to the next one. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm far right. Let me go fix the bar real quick. 
But yet to just kind of remember those characters, and we're going to revisit them later when we get into the middle of the text. So, you know, you, you see the idea here. They want to release this, uh, this reality TV show, you know, to promote these pastors as like these celebrities, right? But, I mean, in all honesty, when we're here, I mean, I'm, I'm not here to be a celebrity. I don't want to be a celebrity. I want to be here so that we can celebrate Jesus, right? I mean, that's the, that's the type of celebration that we're supposed to be performing. So we're going to go and we're going to continue this novel theme, right? I think it's kind of funny. You guys remember where, where my illustrations have come from? You guys remember where I was when I came up with the two illustrations? Does anyone remember? Yeah. I was in the shower, yeah, right? And I was in the shower and I was staring at Lottie's little rubber duckies. So again, three times in a row, I was, I was in the tub, you know, uh, taking a shower for Lottie. And I asked Kitty, hey, Kitty, do you have any illustration ideas? And she said, oh, yeah, I've heard about this show, right? So it's been kind of funny. But what's, what's really amazing to me is that I don't know why we had this nautical theme, you know, like ships and, and ducks and stuff like that. But it's, it's amazing because when you get to over here in 1 Timothy, Paul's like imagery that he's going to use for the whole epistle is the idea of a ship, you know, and, and traveling, right, which is just incredible. I mean, at least, like, one thing I want you guys to, to see for me, I don't remember anything from the sermon, I just got, want you guys to see how exciting it is when you, you know, look into the Word and you see these things come through. So let's look at our first point. We're going we're gonna to carry this theme of a boat. And we're going to help use a narrative of a ship, trying to get to a location, to help us remember the points in 1 Timothy, to help us remember the structure and what Paul wants to tell us. So we're going to start with this idea of, of crashing, right, of the crash. And our first verse, and we're going to go chapter by chapter. We're not going to read every single verse, but we're going to read the main verses. And we're going to start here with verse 5 through 7 of chapter 1. Verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1, and it reads as follows. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a true heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So, what is he saying? Well, the word there for swerving, right, you can think here of the ship. Remember the fellowship, Lord of God, Christian fellowship, we're in this ship together. The idea here of swerving is Paul saying those false teachers, they are swerving you away from your destination. Right? Uh, and another another person talks about like those teachers who will tickle your ear, they'll tell, tell you what you want to hear. He's swerving them away from their destination. Not only does he use this word swerving, which has this, you know, this, this feel of a ship, but then he uses this word for wandering. And it's a pretty graphic word. It doesn't really translate. But what the word literally translates from the Greek is to dislocate. Like, you know when you dislocate a joint? Right? That is the word, the Greek word there. In other words, he's saying that not only are they swerving you away, but that they have, like, dislocated the truth. You know, popped it out of its socket with these things that he's calling vain discussions. You know, things that, that they shouldn't even be talking about. Remember the word vain? There was an image in the last sermon that that, uh, that mist above the water, you can't you can't grab it. You know, vain discussions. So an image of this, right? Let me go to the next slide. Is is the picture of the ship in the storm, and and the person steering it is just steering it into danger, right? Dislocated. 
So in addition to this image of swerving and wandering, he then goes to say in verses 18 to 19, he says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So he opens the book, right? He opens the book, he opens 1 Timothy by talking, you know, telling Timothy about these false teachers, the ones who are dislocating you, the ones who are swerving you off the path. And then right after that, he tells Timothy what his responsibility is. He tells this pastor what his responsibility is. And what's his responsibility? It's to wage war against them. Very strong term. One, this is one of the terms that Paul likes to use. Soldiers, warfare, athleticism. But he's saying that he has a responsibility to wage warfare. He's going to tell us what this warfare looks like. It's not going to involve him, you know, picking up a machine gun running off to go, you know, to go kill some false teachers, but we're going to see exactly what that type of warfare looks like. Alright, so there you have a depiction there of, of this type of spiritual battle that, that your pastors are leading you in. And then after this, to make sure that you get the point that this letter is about the false teachers, he ends the first chapter by returning to that theme. So in the rest of verse 19, this is what he says. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So there, there is idea. You know, we get the word nautical. You have the, the root word, word in there for shipwreck, right? You have the idea of the ship, right, being wrecked and sinking at sea. I don't know what you get. I think that's. I think it's pretty amazing when when you're doing you know sermon prep work and you you know you've been preaching for a couple weeks. You keep returning to these ideas of like ships and stuff like that. You don't know why you're doing it. It just kind of comes together. And then you go over here to talk about pastors and what's Paul doing. Paul's example is the, uh, the image there of a ship wrecking, right? And it kind of just brings all those things together. Pretty incredible. I mean, that, that's one of those spirit things, which I wish you guys can see, you know, from the sermon, right? So we have the idea of the crash, that these individuals, these false teachers, are taking that ship, they're swerving away, they're disjoining it, they're committing war against the church, and, you know, their end goal for these individuals and for the church is this wrecking. So, we talked about this idea of the crash, right? And now we're going to look at this idea of the captain. We're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3. So, he's going to move from talking about, in the first chapter, he's going to move from talking about the false teachers, and now he's going to talk about what that warfare looks like, what those warriors look like, what the captains look like. And, interesting, before he describes like, their qualifications, what is he? What did he talk about in chapter two? What's he talk about? Look at your Bibles. Turn on your Bibles. That's what my that's what my professor said last week. Now open your Bibles. Turn your Bibles on. What did he talk about? What's that? Prayer. So before he even talks about um, before he even talks about the pastors and their qualifications, he talks about prayer, which which is a pretty potent image of exactly what that warfare is going to look like. But he talks about prayer. And he talks about prayer with a focus on evangelism, with a focus of the gospel, right? Bringing it to all nations. So this is what he says in verses 1 to 2 in chapter 2. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Maybe that word peaceful sounds familiar because we've seen it in every sermon we've preached 
right? I think the last four sermons I preached, the, the application there was that God has done this for our peace. But here we see Paul uses four different words for prayer to make sure that you get the point, right? So then we move down here, and in chapter 3, he goes from talking about this focus of prayer to now, you know, what most people know First Timothy for. And most people know First Timothy for, like, this, this description of, like, a pastor's job. These are the qualifications. So, you know, read with me some of his qualifications. This is from chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and remember that word overseer, what's that mean? Sorry. means bishop, but the Bible uses that interchangeably with elder and pastor. Right? So, he, des he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, there's a word, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, and not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into the grave, into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So I'm going to help you guys break that down. This is the pastor's, you know, job description, basically. And he has one duty in all of this. He only has one duty. What's his duty? That's his, that's his title, his office. But his duty is what? And, and where was the word teach attached to what in, in the past sermon? Pastoring. I mean, there's another example of how it's just used interchangeably. But his main duty, his main responsibility, the thing that he does is he teaches. And then everything else that lists are not like, you know, he has to be able to, you know, do a, uh, like a business plan. He has to be able to, you know, do an Excel sheet of finances. No, everything else is about, is about his character. He has one duty and everything else is about his character. And it's interesting because a lot of those characters are all things that are expected of Christians to begin with. But he has the one unique duty of teaching. So let's look. Let's look at some of these qualifications and let's compare them with some of the uh, some of the characters we saw in that video. So you have some situational qualifications, right? This is like he has to have a desire to serve. He has to have a calling, and he can't be a recent convert. A convert, and he has to be well thought of by outsiders. So let me ask you this question. First of all, he has to have a desire to serve. So one of the, one of those gentlemen, his name was Bishop Clarence. Right? He's a pretty uh, prominent individual. He reaches a couple hundred million homes, in, right, with his preaching ministry. Okay, that was the gentleman who had the big crowd. Did you guys see his entourage? Right, he had a guy carrying his luggage, and, and, and you know, if you watch other episodes, like they'll give him like they'll give, give him massages, and like, they're protecting him. They're walking around, you know, his SUV. It's just like his posse, you know, his entourage. I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't look like an image of servitude to me. I mean, especially with Jesus. What did Jesus do with his disciples? He washed their feet. He washed their feet, right? I mean, and, and in addition to that, one of the situational qualifications was that they're well thought of by outsiders. Let me ask this question. When 
your secular non-believing friends watch that program. And I watched an episode. Don't even, you know, don't even waste your time. Right? I did I did research for you. I went to the game. But it's even worse when you watch it. The only person that I can't condemn outright is is uh, is uh, a skateboarder guy because he doesn't really do anything weird. But I really don't have any context. But the other guys, uh, you're gonna see when we get to the illustrations, like it's pretty bad. Okay. But when when the world watches something like that, what do you think the the non-Christian says? That looks just like Jesus, right? You know, that guy that doesn't that look just like Jesus. You know, those, you know, gold rings and stuff like that. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Like, see, this is part of the problem. You got people like, you know, Pastor Lane bling blinging it up. You know, I'm not. I mean, honestly, like every, everything I'm wearing except my wedding ring and these shoes that I bought for work were given to me, right? But these guys, they've got like, I mean, did you see? I didn't even see that color gold that something had. It was like the gold is gold. But anyways, the public is probably not going to have a favorable perspective of those individuals. So in addition to these situational qualifications, you have family qualifications, right? And you have specifically two. You have in verse three, I'm sorry, in verse two, you have this qualification of being a husband of one wife. Now there's some disagreement on what an individual interpret that as. Does that mean that you can't be a polygamist? Does that mean that you have to be faithful? Does it mean that you you cannot be divorced. I kind of lean in the direction that it means that you have to be faithful because the Greek construction is like super weird. It literally says, you know, you have to be one man, woman. Very difficult to translate. But I think the general idea there is you have to be faithful to your to your spouse. And then in addition to that, you have to be able to manage your own household well. There's also some disagreement there. Uh, people sometimes think, well, if your kids are not Christian, then you're disqualified from the ministry. Uh, I, I think that the idea that's being conveyed there more is that they have to be submissive. They have to be submitted to you. But they can't be you know, rabble-roused. Because does anyone in here have control over whether or not their child becomes a Christian? So it would be an odd thing for Paul to say, yeah, you can't you know, be called to the eldership if that's not the case. But let's look at our characters again. Because this is probably one of the most obvious places where they where they, where they drive the ship asunder. So you got this one guy, the younger-looking guy. Did you see, like, he's, like, has, like, a, a, a CD release, and he's, like, at his release party, and he has, like, those glasses and stuff. Yeah, yeah. All blinged out. And then there's a scene with him and his, his what? Girlfriend, his fiance, right? And what, and what's, what are they arguing about? Yeah, what else, right? I mean, hey, couples arguing about getting married all the time, right? Exactly. Did you guys catch that? He's, like, she's, like, listen. You know, no more children unless we get married. Well, you guys don't know as that gentleman, I mean, he's an award-winning musician. He's won double awards, I mean, all this stuff. And he was a pastor at, at some church, but the reason that he got expelled as a pastor is because he cheated on his first wife, right, with his mistress. And now this is the, the second one that he's married to, and they already have a child on a wedding. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I read stuff like this, the husband of one wife, and then he must be able to manage his own household well, and then that comment that she fired back, you're not my pastor? Are you kidding? The, husband, the husband's model for what it looks like in the home should be modeled after your pastor, because your pastor is your shepherd's servant. I mean, that's what, I mean, you want your husband to look like your pastor. I mean, not good. <laughs> that. You understand. I mean, that's what you want the image to be there. 
But in addition to that, did you guys? Oh, and then and then in the episode that I watched, the guy with the mustache, right? The one who was like, you know, Jay Z shouldn't be the only one that has a Ferrari. He's having a, a meeting with um, the younger guy that want to disciple them, mentor them, and he's trying to convince him to get married. Great, he wants to make sure they're getting married for the right reasons. Absolutely. Uh, but the term he uses is he's like, so are you guys shacking up, you know, living together? And they're like, yeah, basically that's not your business. Like, that's the type of stuff I try to escape at my old church. Because he's like living with his his wife, and it's so sad because they're in the car, and he's, and he's, he's dropping her off, right? And he's trying to convince her to go back to the house with him. Because he doesn't want to be in his bed alone. And who's the one in that relationship that says no? It, it was, it was, you know, the outset of one, right? He was definitely violating this, this mandate of, of, of controlling his household. So let's also look now at the moral qualifications. So in the moral qualifications, we basically got moral qualifications and moral disqualifications. So for our moral qualifications, the first and the main one is that he must be above reproach. And what this means is above criticism. In other words, he, he says a couple times, he, he talks about how the secular people view, like how the people outside the church view your pastor, that's important. That's how he's going to end this section. But he begins it with above reproach and he ends it with how they think about you because, you know, he doesn't want that to be a detriment to be, you know, static between the church's mission and, and the outside world. So above reproach means being above criticism and then he provides the type of thing that people would critique you guys about through your pastor. So in addition, he says he has to be sober-minded. Right, to be sober-minded is, you know, if you're in a very toxic scenario, maybe people are fighting, you're not, you know, you're, you're cool as a cucumber. You're able to rationally, rationally you know, discern what's going on and not, you know, jump to conclusions. He says also in verse 2, self-control, which is another version of that. It's like the preventing of those passions. A good illustration of how those individuals wrote it is in the episode I watched, the guy with the entourage and the young musician guy. Like they all get together in what they call the man cave, right? In the gorgeous houses. And they're arguing, like the young guy's arguing that his entourage is not visible. And then the, the older guy with the entourage calls him son, right? Calls him son. And what do they do? They both stand up and like they get in each other's faces, right? And just start, uh, you don't think I know my Bible? And I'm saying, like, no, you don't, obviously. But, I mean, they're in each other's face and they're arguing and then one of them storms off. Right? A definite lack of self-control. Right? They have to be respectable, as it says in verse 2. And then in verse 2, it also says they have to be hospitable. So they can be very, very good. But the idea there in hospitality, which all Christians are supposed to be, is the literal opening of your home. And that's one of, the, one of the reasons I've been very intentional, especially with some of these some people I mean, in the seminary, to invite them over for the uh, the manner that is Cuban coffee. It's a big uh, cultural thing in, 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 in the Cuban family to invite people into your home and to feed them and to give them Cuban coffee. But the idea here is that you want their life to be transparent. So hey, maybe they were successful in that because they had a reality TV show. Right? And then the last one is gentle. Have this gentle spirit. And you could think there of the shepherd carrying the newly born lamb or helping the injured lamb right, with his wounds. They just have this demeanor of sweetness. That's, that's probably like the, one of the characteristics I see most within the Southern Baptist pastors is that they just have this sweetness to them. 
right? Which is so unfortunate when you watch something like that because 99% of the pastors I've ever met, they just have that pastoralness, you know, where they're just sweet. So those are the moral qualifications. That's what his character has to look like. And what does his character not look like? He can't be a drunkard. He can't be violent. He can't be quarrelsome. The word there is he can't be quick to fight. I mean, Jesus asked us to what? To turn our cheek, right? So he has to be a model of this, a model of the Christian's patience, a model of someone who's not quick to anger and quick to argue, but quick to reconcile because Jesus was the peacemaker, and he's supposed to be a model of the peacemaker. Right? He's supposed to be a peacemaking pastor. And then it says in verse 3 that he's not supposed to be a lover of money. Okay? And that's pretty relevant to the thing that we just watched, right? And it was also pretty interesting when I was trying to go to their website to do some more research on them. I told you guys, hey, what church do you go to? Oh, I go to the pastor, you know, uh, XYZ's church. And how that kind of makes me uncomfortable because it's like, it's not pastor at XYZ's church, it's Christ's church. I mean, you come here, and all I'm doing is I'm just teaching you guys the word and trying to give you guys some images so that if you're out camping one day and you see a canoe, you're like, hey, canoe, you know? And you connect that to scripture. But with two of them, their church's websites were bishopmcclendon.com and the other one was Noel Jones Ministries.org. You didn't know the name of church. Like, it's their ministry. So I kind of felt uncomfortable that with this whole idea of not being a lover of money. And then you see with, uh, with uh, Bishop Jones, you know, he loves fast cars. You didn't get to see his, uh, his beautiful house in Malibu, the beachfront house. But he has his garage full of fast cars. And then even in the video, he's like breaking the speed limit as he's driving out. But, in short, these are clearly not, you know, the image of pastor. These are the image of pirates. Right? And that's how I envision it. I mean, these people are pirating off of the church. I mean, they clearly don't look like that. So, after this, after he provides this image of the captain, right, in opposition to this false teacher of the pirate, in chapter 4, he then moves to this command. And the command fo focuses against the false teaching that he's discussing. So he just, he just painted the image there of, of, uh, of the captain, right? The pastor, the overseer. Just more qualifications, more qualifications. And he's really concerned about talking against this pirate character, right? The lover of money, maybe a drunkard addicted. So turn me now to chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 12 to 13. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, and it reads as follows. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So again, he's talking here to Timothy, and he'll call him affectionately, he'll call him young Timothy. He's part of his, uh, his apostolic ministry of planting churches in cities, appointing elders of churches. And he gives them a command, right? To be an example. Right? And then we're going to look at something else. But to be an example, remember this theme has been repeated in the past sermon? Yeah, he's telling them, first of all, don't despise him for his youth. I think he was about 40 at this time. Right? So don't, don't despise, don't let them despise you for your youth. But you're going to do two things. So this is how you're going to command shit. As a captain, I explain to you what a captain looks like, a type of you know, character of a captain. And now I'm going to explain to you what commanding that shit looks like. And the first thing he says is that you're going to be an example. 
And you're going to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, and in faith. Right? So then turn to uh, verse 13. So not only are you going to be an example, but what are you going to devote yourself to? In verse 13, what do you devote yourself to? What? Yeah, you, you, you dedicate, I mean, the thing that you're supposed to devote yourself to, right, is in the reading of the word, and in the teaching of the word, and in the exemplifying, being an example of the word. In other words, you teach the gospel, you practice, you preach. You preach, but you practice. Because those two things go together. And that's what it looks like to, to be in this position of commanding, says the captain. So, now we're going to go to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, look at verses 17 to 18. So we have, so far we have, we have a, a, this image of, of a, a crashing, a shipwreck in chapter 1. We have the image of, uh, of the captain in chapters 2 to 3, prayer, the duty to teach, and moral qualifications. The third image we have is what command of that captain's command looks like. And it, it's by example... You know, in other words, if I came up here and I was wearing a Versace suit and you know, all this like super fancy stuff, and then I'm coming along and telling you guys to sell your you know, Toyota Corollas and give them charity, it would look a little weird, right? You've got to practice what I preach. And we're going to talk about wealth at the end of the sermon, so don't think I'm going to ask you guys to all now go sell your cars. Okay? <laughs> I'd have to sell my car first before I can tell you that, right? So we have. That his command is by example and by a devotion to the reading of the word and the teaching of the word. Like when you watch some of these guys' sermons, they're really entertaining. They're very articulate, they're very charismatic, but I highly doubt that they're going to remember like that. If I don't want you guys to get anything, this is that in your Bible, this is why the biggest compliment whenever I'm preaching is that I see someone in their Bible writing in their Bible, is I want to see you guys draw a boat. Right? Seriously, I want you guys to draw a boat or draw little rubber duckies or draw you know, the cord or the cable to help you understand the text. Because I'm, you know, you're going to go on in your life and the only thing that's going to continue from this ministry is your understanding of what the Word says. So if I can help you understand the Word more and be excited about the Word because it's living, then you know, I'm accomplishing that exampling right, and that devoted. So after command, we now have the coin. Okay, because we've talked about wealth, so it would be weird if if Paul had all these bad things to say about these about these false teachers, right, these pursuers of this type of wealth, and then not give us any guidance whatsoever to how that you know, factors into our life. So this part of the section I call the coin, and here he's going to give instructions for the church. So this is First Timothy chapter five. Verses 17 to 18, and we've read this verse before, but I got some new insights into it. And the verse reads as follows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And, and the word there in the Greek, I can't remember, I think it's like honorum, honoranium or something like that. But the idea there is it's used only in another place, and that's when he's talking earlier about the widows and how it's the church's responsibility to take care of widows financially over the age of 60 who you know, have been widowed and they don't have family to take care of. So he uses this word, double honor. And you know we had read it before. It gives this idea that you're supposed to honor your pastor, your elders, your, your capitan, right? But look at what he talks about right after this. 
Right after this, he's going to talk about, he's going to talk about pulling. You know, is this, the question here is, well, is it all right for, for the pastors or one of the pastors, for all the pastors, to make their living off of it, to have a salary? Because remember, Paul, he, he'll make the argument that he has a right, you know, to, to, to be supported by a mission, but he just doesn't need it because he's attempting. But what he's saying here is that the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor in what? In, in preaching and teaching. In other words, the one who's preaching and teaching all the time, and he's going to make his living off of preaching and teaching, the church should take care of it. And then he gives you these two, these two examples. And the first example is traditional rabbinical uh, argumentative style. So the first thing he says is he said, for the scripture says in the Old Testament, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. In other words, when the ox is out there treading, the ox is eating at the same time. And he's saying, hey, it said in the Old Testament that you should let that ox eat because that ox is working hard for that. Why do you know? So he moves, the rabbinical argument is to move from the lesser to the greater. So saying, look, if that's the case for animals, if you allow the animal to eat from his treading, then he turns to a New Testament passage. The laborer deserves his wages. You know, if this is how he's laboring, you know, if he needs the support, then you should take care of him. That, that's where the, the skater guy, you know, the one thing like that he says in the video is, you know, he should reap what he sows. Well, I, I think that text is more about spiritual reaping. But the idea there is, is correct that a pastor has a right to earn his living, but not all of them need to, like Paul. So, the main idea there, though, is that the coin doesn't become the treasure, right? So, although, yeah, he may, he may, he may earn his living by this preaching, it does not become the treasure that he's after. The treasure that he's after is, is otherworldly, and it's, it's Christ, right? And we're going to turn to that as, when we close on, on a teaching about, about, about this desire to be rich. So, our last image here, right, we've had... We've had um, we had we had the coin. Before that, we had the command. Before that, we had the captain. So we opened up with the crashing. To make his point, he starts with that image of crashing of the shipwreck, and now he's going to close his letter in chapter six by returning to those same images. So returning to the nautical image. So returning to the image of the ship. So turn to First Timothy chapter six, verses six to seven. Alright? First Timothy chapter six, verses six uh, six to ten. He reads as follows. So he's closing his book up. Right? Now there is a great there's great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, but we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into despair into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That one probably sounds familiar, right? It is through this craving that some have swerved away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So one thing to, to notice first is that he's concerned with contentment. In other words, it's okay for the pastor or the pastors Right, to, to you know, earn their living off of their labors, but the idea that is to be content. Right, that's like where his real treasure lies. And the church does have a responsibility to make sure that he's 
that and he's clothed. I mean, it's an image of that. It's like when Kitty and I were in seminary, the church took care of us, and because of the church's efforts, we were able to go and you know go through school full time, right? But the problem, and notice this, the problem does not lie with being rich. Yeah, that's not what Paul's saying. That's why a lot of times uh, this gets misinterpreted. A lot of times people read this as the love of money is the root of all evil. That's, that's what a lot of people remember. The love of money. I, they remember that you know money is the root of all evil. Sorry. You know, they think that money is the root of all evil, but that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is that the desire to be rich is the problem. Right? And that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's a root. Not the only root, but it's a root. That desire to be rich, that desire to be famous, or as you know, one of those elect bishops said, that he likes to be successful. He likes to have fast cars. And another thing you may have noticed about him, he was arguing with that woman. Right? That woman was his friend. On a scale of 1 to 10, she was a 30, she said. Right? His friend. Because he's single. Because he was going to divorce home. And he loves, he loves to have the attention of the single, of the single lady. Because he doesn't want to you know, get married. And that's one of the big conflicts with his marriage. But the idea is, like, that gentleman is an image of this love of money, of this love of being successful. And let me tell you, pastors don't enter the ministry for money. The average amount that they make, the average amount for a pastor is about thirty two thousand dollars a year. For a priest it's like twenty six. Right? So there's not a lot of money in the ministry. So he moves then from this discussion about the sin of desiring to be rich to return to these images here. So what does this desire lead to? Here we have the image of plunging. It plunges people not the good type of plunge about deep soul, the baptizing, but a drowning, a sinking. It sinks people. It drowns them. And it drowns them into ruin and destruction. And both of those words are different. Ruin is like, it's like a progressive contaminating. It even has in the word itself a reference to money. And then destruction is a complete and absolute, you know, uh, uh, like, like it's been run aground. It's hit the coral, and now it's sunk, and it's sitting at the bottom of the ocean. So then after having the discussion of, you know, setting the course, there's the idea of the ship, and that, you know, those lovers of money will try to direct the ship in that direction of something like the prosperity gospel, because of this desire to be rich, that they want everyone to desire to be rich, because that's a sign of God's, you know, uh, God's uh, anointing, of God's uh, blessing on you, is to have good health and to have material property. That type of image, according to Paul, is an image of that swerving. And where's that swerving lead? God gives you this treasure map, and, and the pirate there swerves it off into the coral, into the shallow, runs it around, and not only runs it around, but just utterly destroys it. So after saying this, like the same thing Paul's been doing throughout is then he goes back and talks about Timothy and his responsibility in light of this. And this is 1 Timothy verses 11 through 12 in chapter 6. And he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And then he says again, fight the good fight of the faith. So he's bracketing his letter. He begins the letter with these images of swerving, right, of the shipwreck. He's ending it by recalling them to this image of the false teacher by talking about running aground, destruction, sinking, plunging. 
And just like he did in the beginning, he then says, Timothy, in your, in your job is godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You're supposed to be an image of the gospel. And this is what you're fighting with. Because this is what that warfare looks like. This is what you're fighting against. Right? Those people preaching those type of uh, false doctrines. And then he doesn't leave us asking, well, what about the rich? One of the last things he says is in verses 17 to 19. And this is what he says about the rich people. And by the way, you guys know you're all in this category. You understand that? Just because you're driving a Lexus doesn't mean you're rich. I mean, granted, we're spiritually rich. You're all rich. And I'm pretty sure it only takes one trip to the Philippines to understand that, right? Right? So it took a trip for us to go to New York, you know, into the into the most ghettoest part of New York, right? That Jamaican Bronx, to understand that we are rich. Right? You don't have to go very far to understand that. But when you go to the Philippines, when you go to the Philippines and you see those children, you know that everybody in here is well is rich. Not just the guy driving the Lexus. And this is what he's saying to you guys. I just want to understand that he's talking to us, me included. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a foundation for the future, so they may take hold of what is truly life. What is true life? He uses the word there for treasure. And what are you supposed to be rich in? You're supposed to be rich in good works. In other words, he's not saying, look, if you're rich, Abraham was rich. Right? If you're rich, that's bad. You're going to sell everything. This is one of the errors made by the early patristics in the first couple hundred years of of church history, they just thought that any form of wealth was bad. And it wouldn't take until Calvin and Luther would come along to correct that. But what he's saying here, what Paul's saying here, is it doesn't, you know, just because you're rich doesn't, isn't bad. It's dangerous. Like, like you know, Jesus would say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean that it's impossible. But what he's saying here is it's not wrong to be rich, but that richness itself, being wealthy, has an advantage. And what's that advantage? You get to be rich in good works. What does that mean? One, you get to donate to church. I mean, really, what do you think this does? This, you know, not only supports gospel ministry and the proclamation of the word, but all those other responsibilities that the church is supposed to be doing. But two, you don't have to, you know, donate to Salvation Army or you know to World Vision or to any organization to be rich in the good works. You can do that, and then you can also intentionally look for the needs of people that are within your sphere. You know, if you know someone who has a need, we're all rich. You know, he's saying you guys, you know, can be this gospel communicator, can be this example of, of Christ and Christ-given nature, because you know the Father gave His own Son. So you have to imagine we're supposed to be examples of the gospel. I mean, what was given to us on Calvary? I mean, the Father's Son. That's pretty much bigger than anything we could possibly monetarily give. So he's saying here is that we can then be rich in good works. So the more we have, the more we can give, and the more that we can do, and that's that's a wonderful thing, right? I mean, that's an honor. It's a privilege. And like like I had mentioned, and I'm not this is not for boasting, but I kind of want you not only to hear the words, but my responsibility as a pastor is to try to portray that as well. And one of the reasons that I mentioned that, I mean, almost everything on me has been given to me, 
And I kind of think that that's the way it should be. And, and I, there's something very spiritually satisfying about giving and being given. Like, how, how many of you guys have ever heard me talk about when someone buys me a cheeseburger? Anyone ever heard that? Like, like when I was going to seminary and Penny and I are like living on like, uh, I think like $2,000 a month, which everyone in seminary is doing. When someone would take us out to eat somewhere, when we would, they would buy us a cheeseburger, we were so grateful, and I guarantee you that cheeseburger is more delicious than any cheeseburger that you uh, eat, right? Because it's just like, we just don't have that luxury. And the fact that someone expressed that gratitude made it so much more meaningful, it made it so much more rich. And now that we're getting in a position where with this job that I have, we're able to you know, give people, we're able to do the giving, it's sweet. But it's also great because I've just become accustomed to this type of lifestyle. I mean, it's not saying go and sell your 401k and sell everything you own. Because at the same time, you have other places in the Bible that tell you, like especially you know, you men, that it's your responsibility to take care of your home. In other words, you don't want to put yourself in a position where if something goes bad, you're now the person that's going to need help. You want to be able to provide for yourself. But at the same time, God has given you all this stuff for you to go and to do the real seeding. A lot of times in the prosperity gospel, uh, preachers talk about you know, reaping and, and, and providing a seed. They have the image there that if you give money to church, God's going to like multiply and give it back to you. I think that the image here that we see in seeding is that you have the ability to go and bless people and give people and serve people. And when they ask you why, you get to say, because our, my Lord Jesus Christ has given me something that's so much more valuable than anything I could ever possibly give you. So we have there our image. We went through the entire book of 1 Timothy and focused on Paul's charge against these false teachers. We talked about this image of crashing and shipwrecking. We talked about the image of the Capitan, the captain, right, who's supposed to lead the church primarily by teaching, but then also by his moral example. And then we talked about the point that he does have a right to earn his income, and it's the responsibility of the church to make sure that their pastors don't go hungry. But that's not where he's treasure lies. Where his treasure lies is in the course, right, that God has directed for the church to go. And that's this course of service, this course of the gospel. So we'll close with one more C word, just like any good Baptist preacher. They're going to try to get as many words as their illustrated points that start with the same letter. So the last word that I have there is, is craft. You know, craft is just another word for shift. But this is glory of God, Christian fellowship. And his responsibility is to direct that craft by example and by preaching, by his teaching. And that he's intended to not be a burden upon the church, right? And not to provide, you know, not, not, not to, um, you know, like remember our shepherd image, not to ride the sheep like a cowboy, but to take care of the sheep like a shepherd. So the image here then of the difference between like a shepherd and a captain is that, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of a pirate and, and a captain is that when a pirate, you know, think of some of the pirate movies you've seen. When a pirate is about to get caught, right, you know, or his ship's going down, what does the pirate do? He abandons ship, right? He gets out of there. You know, he's the first one out of there to be the pirate. I mean, he is dominating over them. He is, he is using the people that are under him to himself become more wealthy. But what does the captain do? Think of the image here from Titanic, one of those powerful scenes of the What does the captain do? He goes down with the ship. Right? That's a powerful image there of the difference between some of those individuals that we've seen. And remember, what's the responsibility of the pastor? Not only to exemplify 
right? But to teach and to teach against false teachers, and you guys then see what I just did. I've been teaching against what I believe, according to Paul, are false teachers. That is what the pastor looks like in providing and in protecting the health of the church. And, and this is not the model. All that this is supposed to do is supposed to make you look right through it you know, as he's teaching the word and then see Jesus. Because this is the pathetic, physical model, right? You know, the sinful, depraved model that's just trying his best. But he's been commanded. I mean, remember, he has the responsibility to go before God and be responsible for the souls that have been appointed to appointed him. But he's just trying to make an attempt so that you can just see a glimpse of Jesus. Because if you were only to see a glimpse of that kind of right, that Prince of Peace, then there would be nothing that you could possibly ever own that would seem anywhere in comparison to the treasure of his Christ. And he's giving you this treasure map called Scripture in which you can learn more about him. You can get real you bow your head with me. Close your eyes. I'll close this in prayer. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that you have provided pastors to produce a healthy church. You've provided the church to take care of them, but Lord, you've given them this charge right, to be captains of these vessels, not to be pirates of them, to abandon these ships, but Lord, to be captains that go down with them to the end, to be loving shepherds, and that they have as their example. Christ Jesus, the greatest shepherd of all. Father, we pray that as we end our, our, our series next week by discussing uh, the office of deacons, the second office of the church, and how they exemplify service, that Lord, you may have spoken to the hearts of these individuals by your spirit, that they may, if anything, Lord, not only uh, have learned something through the teaching of your word, but have increased in their hunger and their desire to want to be filled, to want to be enriched by the word that the Spirit has provided us uh, through the apostles and the disciples, Lord. Father, I pray that they may get excited about that, Lord. Grant them supernatural abilities to read the word, to search the word, to grow hungry for the word, for in the end it points to the greatest you know, source of treasure there is, and that's Christ Jesus, and what he has given to us on Calvary is more than we could possibly ever give to anyone. We pray, Lord, that 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 image of not being able to give enough for it, that, that, that we are convicted that we have not given enough, that that is the image that individuals may see so that when they ask us, when they turn to us and say, why, we can point to Calvary and say, that's exactly why, Lord, because you give this to In your beloved name, we give you thanks. Amen.